This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! He who doesn't trust enough will not be trusted. This is the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2019, Episode 4. Today we are discussing the sixth episode of The Promised Neverland. Um, I'm sorry for the abbreviated boards. My alter ego had an especially busy weekend, and I expect this will already be a photo finish. I want to say something real quick before we get started. I know a lot of people have read the manga for this series, and I get the sense that the anime isn't wildly divergent so far. However, there are always differences in adaptations, and sometimes this involves skipping some details for the sake of expediting the story. Perhaps it's because of my discussion on the meaning of the number tattoos and the weirdness with the dates last time, um, but I had several people ask in the comment section if they should share the things that the manga had already made more explicit by this point in the story. Uh, my answer to that is no. Um, I have never read the manga or light novels that serve as basis for some of these anime which means my analysis pulls entirely from the text of the show itself. I believe adaptations must be able to stand on their own and make sense without the benefit of someone knowing the source material. More than that, though, it's possible that information which seems like it has been skipped may actually show up in the anime at a different point or in a different way. A team adapting an anime to feel like a complete part of a story in 12 episodes has a different goal than someone producing as many serialized manga chapters as they need to tell the, the whole tale. And this can result in a shuffling of narrative or character or world building. Um, last season actually had a prime example in Goblin Slayer, which changed the order of some of the arcs in order to end on one which made the season as a whole more cohesive, with clear character progression from the first to last episode as well as visual parallels between the two to help illustrate that progress. Those behind that anime had to break the story in a different way than the original author, and from what I understand about the source material ordering, it seems they made a pretty good choice. Thus, we shouldn't assume that we know exactly how the anime team for The Promised Neverland is going to deal with any part of the original until we actually see it on screen. I realize people get very excited about seeing a work they like adapted, and it's a very natural human reaction to want to share the things that you're enthusiastic about. If you already know what happens, it becomes close to impossible to remember what it was like to only understand part of the story, and you may not realize that things you say will spoil someone else. Humans are incredible pattern-matching machines, and seemingly innocent details can be enough for someone to guess the future if their mind makes an association in just the right way. I appreciate you asking me first before dumping that information in the comments, um, but as a blanket way, I'll just say, until the series is over, we should just assume that anything not yet in the anime is a potential spoiler and should be held in check. 
Um, I'll trust you all to do your best in this, despite your eagerness for others to share in what you love. All right, let's get to it. Our cliffhanger from last time resolves into nothing, basically. None of the interesting possibilities I talked about last time manifest from being caught, and they are rescued from their moment of dread by coincidence. Well, maybe coincidence. There's been repeated hints that Phil is a future savant in his own right, so there's no telling if he walked in completely by chance or not. Um, either way, the stress of believing they were nearly discovered does not cool Don and Gilda's enthusiasm for their espionage, as we will see in a moment. That keeps me from being quite as annoyed at having a tense situation de-escalated by seeming coincidence. Now, since scenes with Don and Gilda intercut with the scenes of our trio planning and discussing the bookplate message, um, I'm going to now break them apart into two sections. Now, this will be clearer than swapping back and forth basically every other sentence. Uh, we will discuss our trio's part of these split scenes first. The absence of Don and Gilda means that these three can discuss the next step freely. They agree that it is time to focus on the outside, as they now feel they have a good chance of escaping over the wall so long as they can deal with the adults when the time comes. Based on what we've seen then, it appears the plan they are going with is to take the kids to the wall and scale it with the linen rope. I'm not sure if the tag training is purely so that they will understand how to duck and move if pursued beyond the wall, or if they actually intend to flee during one of the games of tag by going into the forest. The latter would prevent them from taking the infants and toddlers though, so probably not. There's no discussion of using the gate, or sneaking out by other means, or overpowering the adults, so let's proceed with the assumption that this is their plan and they're satisfied with it. Norman sees their future as having three main phases, with escaping the farm perimeter as phase one. That's not done, but it's planned for. There is a distant final part of figuring out how to survive and become self-reliant, but to get to that problem, they must first solve the problem of the second phase, get away from the farm safely. Going over the wall is all well and good, but then what? Which part of the wall is the best choice? Which direction should they head once clear? Are there unknown obstacles that exist on the other side? Emma had at least looked over the top to see that it was more forest beyond, but Ray once again delivers the dose of reality to her that this isn't nearly enough. Norman suggests that they look into it starting tomorrow. That seems to be the end to planning their next action. Before we leave this scene, I just want to point out that this is the most obvious view we've had yet of the beds in these bedrooms. Um, I suspected as much, but this overhead shot confirms that these beds are not made for children. Wherever it is they get furniture from, or from whatever original purpose they were meant, it was not specifically for these orphanages. No child is going to grow tall enough to suit these beds before being shipped out. What does that mean? I don't know. But I always assume everything in animation is done deliberately. Next up, since they were discussing what to do when they get outside, Emma brings up something that might be related. A series of book plates that she has uncovered in the library. This is the little owl symbol I talked about before that shows up in the end credits, and its prominence meant we could probably count on it entering the story. I didn't say this before, 
but my original sense of it was that it seemed like the kind of symbol a secret society would come up with. And it made me wonder if there was a previous history of kids in this house stumbling across the truth and trying to do their own scheming. A precursor to our trio's little story, with them stumbling across such a group's existence as an interesting turn. Maybe it's because of the time I spent trying to decipher the number tattoos and made me already think this way, but I also thought that maybe marking certain books could be a way they communicated or left information for others to find. Hiding in plain sight, basically. Um, that was my initial wild guess, but I couldn't substantiate it, so I never shared it. Um, I always have way more what-if questions in my mind than I ever share on here. Now, the truth so far seems to be mostly different, except that the use of certain books to communicate something matches up, at least as far as they can guess. Um, I'm not sure why it struck me that way. Um, I guess it was just a hunch? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ray, I, I know, and that's why I kept it to myself. But I share all that to say that I understand Emma's initial reaction that the series of book plates was an attempt to communicate something in secret. Now, the plates consist of an owl in a circle with Ex Libris written on top and the name William Minerva on the bottom. The Ex Libris part indicates from the books of, from the library of, and is a traditional part of book plates to indicate ownership. The name William Minerva is heavy with meaning, at least the Minerva part. Minerva is the Roman goddess of wisdom, poetry, commerce, crafts, medicine, and strategic warfare. She's the one who sprung from Zeus's head, fully formed and fully armed, um, and the Romans would eventually conflate her with Athena from the Greek pantheon. Her sacred animal was the owl, and it is from this association that we equate owls with wisdom. Thus, our little book plates have the owl of Minerva along with the name, both invoking the patron goddess of wisdom. At the same time, they are communicating a message that would only be picked up by someone observant enough to notice that they weren't identical, and wise enough to guess what they might be. The circles are irregular, but can be read as the dashes and dots of Morse code. It's a message, but requires a certain wisdom to recognize it as a message in the first place. It seems to say, you will need to be wise if you hope to proceed. I ran through them all to make sure, but this is American Morse code used to spell English words, so that syncs up with every other instance of writing in this anime being in English. The words are run, doubt, danger, truth, harvest, monster, farm. All of those seem like a warning or a call to action, and the farm, monster, harvest ones especially seem to indicate that this William Minerva character or organization knows what is going on at their location. Additionally, there are two that Emma thought stood out from the others. They belong to a book of mythology and an adventure book, and one of them has a solid circle with no Morse code, while the other's code reads Promise. I think that the solid circle one is on the mythology book and the promise on the adventuring book, um, but I can't say for sure. Um, the kids don't have any guesses on the significance of this, though I will have a few later in the video. Um, I will at least point out now that Minerva is a mythology reference, and one of these books is a mythology collection. I'm going to be so delighted if it turns out to be the Golden Bow again. The first editions of that work were green with gold lettering and I could definitely believe Ray would have trouble understanding it. 
Now, all these facts together suggest possibilities about the outside world without being able to confirm much of anything. The audience is in the same boat as the trio, trying to guess the whole puzzle from a few scattered pieces. Um, we did a little of that last time, and I suggested that the reference to 2015 for an apparent technological zenith suggested that there were no books in this library with a date later than 2015, even though that is supposedly 30 years in the past. While one of the things that Emma and Norman fix on is the possibility of William Minerva proving there is a safe place for humans in the outside world, Ray rightly points out that they can't know if such a person is alive or dead at this point. Emma points out that one of them could only have been affixed after 2015, since that's the copyright date, so it's at least possible that the person might be alive. But leaving aside the question we raised last time about the validity of the dates we see, no length of time, no matter how short, can verify that this person is still alive or even in the same situation as when they attach these messages. There is no prudence in assuming or planning for there to be other humans. Ray says not to get their hopes up too much. But the critical thing here, I think, is that at least a little bit of hope is warranted. We don't know what process is involved in delivering books to this place, but the nature of this message means somebody somewhere is in a better position than they are. Not just because of the situation required to be able to slip them covert messages under the demon's noses, if they have noses, but the fact that someone would even think it's a good idea. That is, warning them about their situation and urging them to run implies that there exists a better situation to run toward. Now, the choices of books don't seem to hold significance for them, with the exception of the adventuring book and mythology book feeling significant to Emma. There is also a reference to some ripped pages, but it's not further explained, so I don't know if that means these books have the ripped pages or what, but Emma's hunch on this is that these two books will become some kind of important guide for them. Again, I will speculate on this later. Aside from the world building and foreshadowing inherent in this bookplate scene, I do believe that aspect of hope is most important. They end their time in the library deciding that the mystery of the books is worth looking into, as it may hold some promise for them in the future. As Emma says, they aren't just running away, they need to find a way to survive in this world. Their resolve is strengthened from the idea that someone else in the world might be on their side, might even be able to guide or save them, that they aren't alone. This settled, they proceed to dinner. On the way, Norman and Ray both remark that it was unusual for Emma to be the one to notice the book plates and their message. But she deflects. It wasn't her that noticed, it was Phil, who apparently was reading a book whose story had Morse code in it. As this one also belonged to William Minerva, the inclusion seems deliberate. Give the children a book that specifically points them towards the use of Morse code while also using it to communicate. I know they didn't think there was significance to the choice of books outside the two that struck Emma, but doesn't the choice of a book with Morse code in it overturn that notion? Is it not possible the other books also have such hints as one small aspect of the whole? Um, though I confess it's possible that the adventuring story she mentions is also the one that has the Morse code in it. This is once again the show drawing attention to little Phil, so I think we should get used to the idea that he'll become a more prominent character, or even an ace in the hole, down the stretch. 
Arriving at dinner, there is a moment of instinctual confusion, of recognizing something is out of place. The trio quickly make the leap that Dawn and Gilda are missing, and that this could mean they did the very thing they just discussed was a bad idea. It's another nice, subtle hint that their minds work fast, and it also comes as a real mood whiplash for their upbeat optimism after discussing the Minerva messages. So, where are Dawn and Gilda? Let's go back then and run through their half of things. As I said, believing they were almost caught does not dissuade Dawn and Gilda from their curiosity, and apparently neither does the locked door. Dawn manages to pull off the pickpockets bump and lift technique to extract the key from Isabella directly. He is triumphant at his success, though Gilda seems alarmed. Despite his smile, Don has stress sweat beads of his own, so I think even though they are barreling straight ahead, neither feels very sure of themselves or has forgotten the dangerous nature of their game. As if to emphasize this, it cuts to Isabella taking on a very suspicious look. Our recurring horror-esque soundtrack picks up as the camera dollies past, once again giving our perspective a bit of a voyeuristic quality to emphasize that feeling of paranoia. We know that Isabella feels something is amiss, and it potentially bodes poorly for Don and Gilda, who have pushed their luck still further by thieving from her directly. Once inside, they tentatively poke around the space, though they are sure to close the bookcase behind them first. While the room they first find themselves in is innocuous enough, Don soon finds the trapdoor leading below. I mentioned last time we already got a sneak peek of this two-room system, with the actual radio in the room below. Based on what I understand about the layout of this place, it makes me think this room is actually underground, and that would make her radio communications more private. It might also explain why handheld lanterns are necessary for lighting in this room that is sort of off the grid. It certainly helps the horror vibe, though. Having so much of it in darkness, with them only able to illuminate small portions at a time, this means they discover each corner of the room in sequence, instead of having the mystery dispelled all at once. It's another aspect of that fear of the unknown invoked by the frequent use of lights isolated by darkness. One of the things they thus discover searching around is Little Bunny. I wondered last time if its presence in that room was foreshadowing that Isabella has kept a lot of things from the children sent to harvest, or if it meant that Dawn would happen across it and therefore have reason to doubt our trio. It actually is both, which I think is a great use of this fool's errand. It's interesting, too, that Dawn and Gilda have slightly different reactions to what they are uncovering. Neither is glad of what they're finding, but Gilda seems oddly relieved. That is, seeing these mementos does not match their previous impression of Isabella. They are evidence that the kindly mom who sends them on to adopted families is a fiction. It's similar to how she was ready to believe Emma when she first told them Isabella was an enemy. She knew Emma's behavior didn't line up with the Emma she knew, suspected something very distressing must have happened, and the revelation of their mom being a bad person matched in a plausible way. Thus, seeing these confiscated keepsakes further helps resolve the dissonance in her mind. It's concrete evidence for the version of mom that Emma describes and against the version she previously believed in. Don, however, has his skepticism amplified. The notion that all was not well with Connie put him in an agitated state that has lasted for days. 
The side of Little Bunny just ratchets this up further. His whole life has been a lie. His mom has been a lie. The happy outcome for his little friend has been a lie. Why wouldn't something a few older children tell him not also be a lie? Don runs back through the warnings they were given in the meeting just before, that they would be doomed if Crone found out. In his agitation, he interprets that as ominously as possible, and leaps further to believe that if they are willing to do something dangerous to them, then they would have had no reason not to have already done something to all the children who have left the facility. This escalating panic is just the kind of character reaction that goes hand in hand with all the paranoia elements of the series. But as the old joke goes, it's not paranoia if they're really out to get you. But Gilda is not on board with this train of thought at first. This discovery made things make more sense for her, even though they have made Dawn more confused. She tries to argue for the version that the trio told them at first, but Dawn insists that they were just hiding things from them. Gilda does not actually object to this. Instead, the idea of being lied to from both sides has caused her some dissonance of her own, and she instead insists that they probably have a reason that they can't tell them. Regardless of the truth, her experience with Emma and Crone means that she has chosen sides. She wants to believe in the trio and will excuse them such discrepancies. But Dawn is not of a mind with her and says, I can't believe them like that because they don't believe in us. I'll revisit this later, but it's the very thing we thought might happen from the decision to hide the truth. Unfortunately, their time to explore is over as they hear Isabella coming into her office. The lantern as lighting and the below ground nature of the radio room keep them from being discovered immediately as there are no light leaks to indicate someone is in the room beyond. Suddenly, the secret room having two entrances is a critical detail, as Gilda indicates the opposite door as an escape route after they extinguish the lantern and climb back up. However, they manage to make noise in the process, and Isabella's surprised look narrows to suspicion before she gets up to investigate. Near as I can tell, they are able to get out to the other door and leave the key for Eugene to return before Isabella decides to open the bookcase and look in. Presumably, she would lock the outside door first to prevent someone barging in and seeing the bookcase exposed. In fact, she is caught off guard for a moment herself when Eugene bursts in. She checks her pocket after seeing what he is holding, which seems to indicate that she didn't realize the key had been lifted before now. Her expression when examining the key suggests that her suspicions are not allayed, but instead redoubled by having the key returned to her. While Don and Gilda did not get caught in the moment, and later seemed to be satisfied at having already returned the key, I feel like there's little chance they managed to put everything back exactly as it was. With Isabella already suspicious about what she heard, anything out of place is going to confirm for her that someone took her key and poked around in that room. There might be far more incriminating or inflammatory things in there than we yet realize, so I'll be curious to see if this changes her behavior in the future. While I'm on the subject of what is in there, why do you think she keeps all these mementos of past children? Surely she would have had some way to dispose of them without their discovery if she just needed to hide their existence. What's more, they aren't all shoved in a box somewhere. It's more like they are displayed. They're lined up on shelves with nothing obscuring them. Isabella likes having them for some reason. They're a private collection. 
We even see that black cat stuffed doll that I pointed out is in the end credits with a lot of other apparent memories. What does all that mean? It actually reminds me of a similarly odd moment from the very first episode. Just before Isabella is to lead Connie away, she takes one drawing off of the hallway display board. It's almost certainly a drawing by Connie of her and Isabella together, with Little Bunny also, of course. When Isabella takes it down, though, she actually hugs it to herself and closes her eyes. There is some fondness to this behavior, and there doesn't appear to be anyone else around to make this a type of performance. It doesn't seem like regret or a moment of guilty conscience, even though Isabella absolutely knows what's about to happen to Connie. We'll revisit this, but it informs how I read a later scene between her and Ray, so I wanted to bring it up now. Back in scene, Don and Gilda get free of their misadventure and continue to their original destination where the trio awaits them. Gilda looks a bit chastised, knowing that they won't be keeping their visit a secret, but Don is determined and incensed. He is sure they were being lied to and is determined to have a confrontation over it. Ray, likewise, is positive the two of them were up to no good and intercepts them to demand where they were. Both sets of children will need to hash things out further, it seems, which is what will comprise our next scene. Before we move on to that, though, I split these scenes up because doing them simultaneously was an incoherent mess to discuss, but I don't want to give the impression that intercutting them this way had no meaning or no effect. Don and Gilda's growing dread is all the more stark for the contrast with the trio's burgeoning hopefulness as their plan and the Minerva messages. While at the same time, their optimism is cooled in the audience's mind by the threat of Don and Gilda getting to the truth in their own way, which will surely spark a future conflict. There's also a few techniques in here using the montage effect, such as having Don and Gilda's first alarmed upward expressions cut directly to Norman's foot descending the stairs, which for a split second gives you the impression that it is Isabella descending the stairs toward them. So there was a purpose to them intercutting the scenes this way. Um, I just split them up for clarity. So then, Don and Gilda are busted, and the five have a late night meeting to get it all out in the open. We once again have the visual motifs of the ever-ticking clock and a circle of light surrounded by darkness. At the start, the five are all inside the lighted ring the lanterns cast, though Ray stands apart and the light does not reach his face. Don and Gilda own up to stealing the key and going into the secret room, though they believe that Isabella didn't notice. Ray, though, is immediately incensed at this naivete, telling them that they did something really stupid. What if the room had an alarm, or a camera, or was bugged? Though Gilda is chastised, Don's own anger at believing he has been deceived is only stoked higher by this dressing down. Once Ray begins to refer to the kind of consequences that might have awaited them all if they were caught, Don fires back. What would happen if they were caught? Would they be killed? They found Little Bunny. Is that because Connie was killed? Because they all were? Don's outburst immediately gets to Emma, who apologizes without thinking. Her own guilt or shame or ill feelings about deceiving them override any attempt to be calculated or continue the denial. She realizes this as Gilda begins to confirm that they suspected something other than what Emma had told them, and she is shocked by it. The apology also emboldens Dawn, 
who knows he's onto something here and he demands to know the whole truth. Emma looks to Norman, who nods agreement and appears to be the one to share everything. It would only jeopardize their working relationship to try to deny or obscure at this point, and the truth had to come out eventually. They even include Ray's status as spy. Don and Gilda's expressions tell us that they took it uh, about as well as expected. Aside from the horror of it though, Don zeroes in on the fact that Ray would have known Connie's fate before it happened, and that Emma and Norman were prepared to take them into a world of demons by tricking them. This puts the simmering emotional crisis inside Don past the boiling point. He has been lied to by everyone around him, it seems, and at first he just exhales in defeat before giving in to the laughter of retreating sanity. The camera cuts around to take in the other four's reaction to Don's laugh, which range from Gilda's horror to Norman's eventual look of shame, which is promptly wiped off his face by Don's instability swinging to anger and violence instead. Ray gets his own turn, though we should note that he dropped his distant indifference when it came down to trying to intervene against violence toward Norman. Don grips Emma as though he will deck her next, and she does not fight back, but braces for impact. He releases her without striking though, which I feel may tell us something about him. She is really the one he should be most angry toward, since she initiated the lie, but he finds he can't punch her when it comes to it. No doubt he is closer to her than the others, as she is a big sister figure to most of them. His personal feelings seem to override his desire to externalize his frustration. That is, his anger is not as righteous as it may have been. He found it easier to hit Norman and Ray because of his differences with them, not because they were more wrong than Emma was. This emphasizes that he is driven by his emotions, something he will confirm in a moment when he and Gilda are alone. It's also likely a deliberate choice by the creators to preserve audience sympathy for Dawn, as punching a girl is beyond the kin for a lot of people in a way that punching a fellow guy is not. Instead, Dawn strikes back with guilt, asking if they were so weak and useless that the trio felt they needed to protect them. He says that when Emma asked for their help before, he felt like they were relying on him. Was that just another lie? By Emma's reaction, I judge that these words impact her far worse than a punch would have. Don admits that they are not as smart as the trio. Indeed, our very first introduction to Don suggested that he had an inferiority complex over the difference between himself and the perfect scoring trio, Norman in particular. It's believable that he would be enthusiastic about being invited to share their secret and aid them. It probably felt like validation at the time. However, Underneath that is still a fragile self-confidence. Low self-confidence manifests differently in different people, and I think Don is the sort who is prickly about it, prone to lashing out when feeling threatened. Having his idea about getting into the secret room shot down cuts close to this internal inferiority, and pushing back against them by doing just what they didn't want him to do is how he handles the dissonance inside. I believe even this guilt trip is a form of that. It may look different than him swinging his fists, but it comes from the same place. This seems to match up with what he will say in just a moment when he is outside. He excuses himself, saying he is going to go cool off, and Gilda follows him out. He admits to her that he was just taking it out on them. He isn't upset so much at being treated like he is weak, 
Rather, he knows he is weak, and having that confirmed by their actions is more than he can deal with in a reasonable way. He says that he made them lie. His own belief in being ignorant and powerless lines up with the way they felt they couldn't tell him the whole truth. He is frustrated not at his treatment, but that the treatment may be justified. He is weak and ignorant. He was not able to do something for Connie or any of the others. Don's internal conflict here is wholly different than the trio's. They are faced with this existential threat, but they immediately bend their will toward overcoming it. They believe a solution can be found, and they explore different options, investigate, theorize, discuss the pros and cons among themselves. There is a distinct impression that something can be done, and it's up to them to find it and do it. Don is different. Don feels the threat, and it overwhelms him. While the trio finds themselves on a boat in a storm and immediately try to sail for land, when faced with the same storm, Don drops the tiller and hopes he will be blown the right way. The trio's conflicts are external, against the caretakers, the demons, and against each other when trust becomes a question. Don's conflict is internal. He feels powerless against the forces arrayed against them because internally he believes he does not have what it takes to face them. Now, after facing Don's outburst, Emma says that she was wrong. She chases after them, bringing the lantern along, and says that she didn't understand. Apparently, she had already assumed she would be resented by them one day. That is, she knew they would hold her half-truth against her, but was willing to suffer the personal backlash because she still thought it's the best course in the moment. But she also is made to face that her rationale came from not believing in Dawn and Gilda the same way she is able to believe in Norman and Ray. In this respect, I think Dawn is near the truth in his retort to her, even if he was doing it to lash out. The fear of betrayal is one thing, and may have been part of how Emma justified her deception, but from her response here, I think she realizes there was more to it. This gets interesting when you think about Emma's larger goal of saving everyone. Ray has argued that the younger kids are just a burden, that their lesser abilities put everyone involved at risk. While Emma has resisted this logic because she wants to save everyone anyway, her decision not to entrust Dawn and Gilda to have enough resolve to believe in them, as she says, reveals that she has her own fears about the lower capabilities of the other children. There is a bit of hypocrisy to the way Emma has proceeded, and this fight with Dawn and Gilda is making her face it. I'll talk a little bit more about this in theme, but it's a delight to have this range of development in a character when it's spurned by their own decisions. Lots of characters change over time as their circumstances shift, and they are molded by their reactions to these shifts, but Emma is mostly the proactive one in the character journey we are witnessing. She insists on trying to save everyone, she decided to hide some truth from Dawn and Gilda, and she is first to apologize and try to own her misjudgments. She is growing rapidly under the crucible of this crisis, but she doesn't shy from it at all. It's small wonder that Norman will defer to her at times. I've said it several times on this channel, but earnestness has a power all its own to inspire the admiration of others, and Emma is nothing if not earnest. Her apology initiates a cascade of further apologies, with each character trying to express remorse over something they had said or done. Even Ray gets prompted into the action, 
even though I'd argue he probably has the least to apologize for in this particular situation. After all, he was opposed to deceiving them. He nevertheless says he'll take care of things if necessary and is sorry for the other things he's done. With this conflict behind them, Emma has the wisdom to ensure that they are all being honest in their motivations and wants to put the request for help to Don and Gilda once more. Even if it was for their own eventual benefit, they included them under false pretenses. It's not an equitable partnership if they don't have a real option to reconsider. While I don't think they would choose differently now that they know everything, the gesture gives legitimacy to their partnership. They still want in, of course, and it appears most of the danger of concealing the truth has passed our group by. Most, but not all, as we will see at the very end. The next day, Emma confesses that she feels better having told Don and Gilda the truth. This is just like I talked about last time when discussing the relief Ray probably felt to come clean about his role as informant. In spite of consequences, unburdening yourself from secrets is cathartic. They are a week away from escaping, it seems, which means that they have not shifted their target date despite the reveal of Ray as a spy. The exact details still remain to be sorted, and Emma confesses that she has tried to figure out on her own how to escape with everyone. At least, that is what our subtitles say, but I get the sense what is meant is that Emma has tried to figure out how to escape with everyone on her own. That is, she has come up with a plan unilaterally, and perhaps one that can be acted on even if she's the only person who knows it or is around to try to put it in action. I know that's not what it says exactly, but the way they pause as though she's made a statement with some gravity to it, as well as the agreement that it's reckless, make me believe that this is more what was meant. Emma goes on to say that this would catch Mom off guard and is realistically the only way to escape with everyone. After thinking a moment, Norman appears to agree. Now, I am fairly certain that Norman wants to find a way to let Emma's wish of taking everyone come true, yet he cannot make this obvious enough for Ray to uncover it. They have a shaky alliance over this one point, and I'm sure Norman also doesn't want to have to hide things from Ray to the point that they leave him behind. Emma concocting some plan that doesn't require Norman's input, and maybe doesn't require his or Ray's involvement, could be an elegant solution here, as he could still work on a viable escape plan that doesn't involve everyone to keep Ray compliant and still in the loop. I guess having multiple possible paths when the time comes could be an advantage even despite the need to hide things. However, it's interesting that right after Emma confesses she feels better about coming clean to Dawn and Gilda that she confesses to hiding something else. While she is coming clean to Norman here, she does so because she has a follow-up question. Should we tell Ray? The fact that this is even a question she asks tells us that she has not abandoned her initial read on Ray, that him agreeing to help them escape with everyone was not like him. Now, despite the incredibly recent example of how hiding the truth can backfire, she is still considering hiding this from Ray, and with Norman's backing, she probably will. I don't think this is because Emma has the memory of a goldfish or anything. Rather, the two situations are not as comparable as they might seem. She had doubts about putting her faith in Dawn and Gilda, but I think she can trust that they would want to save everyone as well, that their priorities would align. She is less sure about Ray. What's more, 
He is capable enough that working against her is a threat in a way that Dawn and Gilda would not be if we're being honest. Thus, Emma follows up her question to Norman with another. Do you think Ray would really have everyone escape? And though Norman says that of course he would, Emma's expression makes her worried skepticism rather plain. But Norman continues and gives her something new to ponder, as he says Ray has been moving all this time while thinking about us, always for the both of us. She fixes right in on the both of us part, which is something I raised questions about last time. Luckily, several of you are more proficient in Japanese than I can hope to be, and my hunch seems to bear out. The phrasing does indicate the two of them as separate from himself. Having Emma fix on the phrase this time as well further emphasizes that it is an odd thing to say and that it seems Ray is not including himself. He is not saying, I've done all this work to save us. He is saying, I've done all this work to save you two. There is a difference in subtext here and it seems Norman didn't fail to notice either. This might actually be what he was about to ask Ray last episode before Emma interrupted on the way back from the forest. He is curious of what Ray meant by saying it that way, and the next scene seems driven by that curiosity. Norman sneaks into the bedroom Ray is assigned to while it's empty and begins searching for something. I said last time that Norman's surprise over Ray getting things from Isabella over the years meant that Ray must have a hiding place Norman wasn't aware of. He seems to have reached the same conclusion and intends to find it. And Norman being Norman, he seems to do so with little difficulty. The camera intentionally obscures what he finds and teases us with just the barest hint of maybe yellow books or boxes or something. But as Norman repeats the very phrase that has inspired this curiosity, we can be sure that what he sees in this space answers whatever question he had. He then says, I see. You're amazing, Ray. I'll revisit what this might all suggest in speculation, but the key thing is Norman's smile and praise at what he finds. Whatever is in the hiding place strengthens his opinion of Ray. It does not initiate some new crisis of trust. Now, as they discussed in the beginning, the next phase is to investigate how to get away from the farm, and that means exploring the outside. This is complicated because of the risk the tracking devices pose to keeping it a secret, and so it appears they have come up with a complex diversionary tactic. Dawn has stolen some herbicide and detergent, and they are going to factor into a bit of misdirection so that neither Isabella nor Crone will be looking at the trackers during the time they are outside the wall. To make this work, Norman will be demonstrating his first use of Ray as a double agent. Their injuries from being clocked the night before end up becoming a useful tool in this charade, and having Isabella attend to his own shiner gives Ray an opportunity to share the crafted lie. It's a good example of the old adage, when Dawn gives you lemons, make convincing lemonade. That's not a real saying. The lie, as it turns out, is that Norman is looking to poison or otherwise incapacitate Isabella, and the stuff that Dawn stole will lend credence to this ploy. Isabella's reaction to the idea that Norman would want to kill her is to be surprised, though she recovers quickly and reasons it is something Norman would do in order to escape with everyone. If you remember last time, I talked about how the characters were behaving as children by not having kill the caretakers as one of their plans. 
a group of adults would have considered that option pretty early on, I believe. Thus, I think if Norman proposed that as a real plan to, say, Emma, she would be shook, while proposing it as a plan to Isabella makes her think, yes, that makes sense. Ray gives her the details of the plan, that Norman has secreted away some chemicals and potential weapons. Then Isabella actually does some of the work for them. She guesses that this might have been the real purpose of the rope she found, as it was apparently too short to be a believable escape tool. Norman probably goofed there, but now it has been covered up by her own inference. Additionally, when Ray insists he tried to dissuade Norman from this plan, Isabella guesses that this is what led to their exchange of blows. Since Isabella has now made her own intuitive leaps about what went down, the story probably seems all the more believable to her. Letting her supply some details will make it more real in her mind. Then comes the riskier part of the gambit. Despite the threats to Isabella's life, Ray needs to insist that she not ship them out early. He states that he wants them to live all the way to the end, that is, until age 12, without any discomfort. The way he says this makes me believe that this is the deal he had struck with her, the carrot for his cooperation. Instead of responding to this threat in a punitive way then, he recommends some deceit. Change the chemicals into something harmless, and then leave the stuff alone. Norman will waste time and energy on a plan that will fail without knowing that he has been deceived. Ray knows where the stuff is being hidden, and Isabella assents to this plan, saying that they will take care of it tomorrow. This apparently ends Ray's side of things, and he prompts Isabella, asking if she didn't have something else that was bothering her. She says no, but then, as though just remembering, says that she has news to share from yesterday's check-in. Evidently, there will be no shipment in the next month, meaning the next one will be when Ray turns 12 in January. This seems to support my guess that he is the oldest based on the numbering, so that's not unusual. What is unusual to us in the audience is the way this seems like welcome news to the both of them. Even if it is the end of their long-held agreement that he should be able to serve out his full years and his best friends also, you'd think there would be a bit more of a resigned feel to its arrival. That isn't really what we get here. In fact, this whole scene is a bit different than I would have expected. The first isolated scene between them was last time, and I described it as being very no honor among thieves, that there was a sense each knew the other was maneuvering and had their own game of intrigue. It's a unique tension. They can be more honest with each other than with anyone else on the grounds in all the years leading up to this because of being the only two who know the truth. But they also must keep back a layer of honesty and be more on guard with one another than anyone else because of the risk Ray represents because of knowing that truth. It's an odd dynamic, as before the series started, each of them needed to be more suspicious of the other person than they were of anyone else in the house, while at the same time, they could only discuss the reality of the world with that other person. However, in their isolated scene this time, I get a different vibe. Maybe it's just because she's attending to his wound and is so in a more caretaker role for a moment, but this scene felt a lot more like they were at ease with one another. There is no need for Isabella to keep up the mom act with Ray, but she comes off feeling a little bit maternal this time around. The two of them are very similar based on everything we know so far, 
and I come away from this feeling like they have a bit of a strained mother-son dynamic going on. This is further complicated in my mind because of what we noted earlier, the way Isabella has displays of past Harvest victims' belongings, and the way she cradled the drawing from Connie. Now she is informing Ray that the next shipment will be him, and there's almost a triumphant or celebratory air to the thing. Maybe this does mean that he will be joining the world of the adults, just as was implied by his answer to Norman about why someone might turn traitor, or considering the way Isabella seems to treasure the memory of children she has delivered, is it possible that she feels something like satisfaction in what she does? Like, as though she were a true believer in whatever ritual it is that the demons need the supreme goods for? It's not exactly unheard of for a conquered people to adopt the culture or beliefs of their conquerors after some time has passed. South America is full of Spanish-speaking Catholics. Is it possible we have something similar in this world, among the adults who cooperate with demon society? It's a further mystery, and I'll add it to our list later on. Last of all, everyone besides Ray is venturing through the forest. They accept that the misinformation will deal with Isabella, but what about Crone? Her finding out could be far worse. Norman tells them not to worry, he has an idea. He's had a solution to a lot of what they've faced so far, so it's probably safe to trust that he is on top of things once more. Ah, crap. It seems there was an additional consequence to the half-truths of Emma and the reckless exploration of Dawn and Gilda. Even though they have made up, their late-night conference and dispute was too conspicuous, and Crone was able to spy them out and confirm which five know the house's secret. She isn't interested in playing games, and immediately divulges what she knows and how she knows it. She makes a little targeting reticle with her fingers to isolate each of them in turn as she lays it all out, which isolates each of the four's reaction to what she's saying. Dawn is definitely panicked, Gilda is worried but in a more meek way, Norman is distressed but determined, probably mind racing, and Emma appears ready for a fight eyebrows steepled in defiance and interposing herself between Crone and Gilda. Our guess of how she would react to a perceived threat against her family seems to be near the mark. Thus it would appear that the episode will end with the very thing they thought was the worst case, and their crisis has become way more dire. But that's not actually the cliffhanger. The cliffhanger is that after revealing that she has them dead to rights, Crone asks if they would like to join forces. We only see Emma's reaction to this, but it is surprise, confusion, maybe even a touch of horror. This creates a new conflict, so we will talk about it there. Let's move on then to our goals section. We'll start with Norman and his goal of managing Ray as an asset. We said that part of managing Ray was feeding misinformation back to Isabella, and one of the keys to that is that it couldn't get him caught by being easily disproven. You shouldn't, for example, tell a lie about something like hiding rope in a place where no rope is actually hidden, because then if Isabella checks, it casts suspicion over Ray's usefulness or loyalty. This is probably why Ray made sure Norman was actually going to hide rope where he said, though he shrouded his intent by saying it would complicate matters if Dawn or Gilda checked and found nothing. This time we see the first instance of this misinformation, and it obeys this rule nicely. Having Norman actually steal the chemicals 
but then have Ray lie about the purpose is a pretty great trick. The presence of the chemicals in another place gives validity to Ray's information as spy, but Isabella is not going to be able to know if that was Norman's intent or not. Can't prove or disprove that without successfully eavesdropping at the right moment. I will grant, though, that there is a potential complication, as Isabella believing they are going to threaten her life might change what she would have done otherwise. Norman further spends time investigating Ray on his own. A double agent is a double-edged sword, and it is prudent to verify whatever you can of them or their motives. Thus does Norman poke around in Ray's room and find his hiding space. While we don't know what he found, it does not seem to erode his confidence in Ray. In fact, it might have given him more faith in using him for the misinformation ploy. That said, I suspect he will let Emma's unilateral plan for escape remain between them. Speaking of that, in the shared goal of Escape the Farm, Norman laid out the plan as having three main components. We seem to have the shared version of Phase 1 treated as settled. They haven't changed the date or the main way they expect to leave the grounds. Other details appear to depend on what they discover beyond the walls, and so this goal has now mostly moved on to planning Phase 2. There is a potential wrench thrown into this at the end with Crone's appearance, but for all we know, she will be a boon in this matter instead. The net outcome still seems like progress towards this unifying goal. We also saw a little progress toward Phase 3, surviving in the outside world after they get away from the farm. There's nothing concrete, but the existence of the Minerva messages mean they will have to entertain the possibility of some kind of assistance or human refuge existing beyond their walls. That is, they are probably not the sole humans who will be trying to evade the will of the demons and their human proxies, and that will likely affect how they strategize when the time comes. Now, that is the shared version of the Escape the Farm plan. I'm not going to add it up here, but Emma is also working on her own version of Phase 1, though presumably the same Phase 2 and 3 steps could be followed if she ends up needing to enact her own plan. For the moment, it seems only Norman and Emma know of this alternate path, and it's hard to say whether that will change in the near future. Finally, we will add a goal for Ray by admitting that he has an unknown goal. At this point, I'm not even sure he wants to save himself, but he and Isabella have some arrangement that he valued enough to play nice all these years for, and I believe he has some kind of scheme that he is still keeping from Emma and Norman. Norman has uncovered some part of it at least, but we are meant to be in the dark at this point in the story. I do think he is still acting to keep his options open, but I confess that the paths which it seemed he was pursuing might not be right at all. His conversation with Isabella especially makes me question what he really wants the most out of all this. The only thing I feel sure he wants right now is for Norman and Emma to survive, and to survive beyond their 12th birthdays. The deal with Isabella was enough to ensure they lived at least that long, so he wouldn't have gone to the rest of this trouble if he was satisfied with only that. Also, it's possible that Crone is set to advance her own goals next time, but without knowing the nature of her proposal, it's hard to guess what exactly we should set down just yet. But I would expect we might get some clarity on how she's going to make a move towards what she wants. 
In conflicts, our deception among us time bomb went off, basically. We knew that eventually the whole truth would have to come out to Don and Gilda, and we knew they were going to feel hard done by. The actual confrontation between the five ended up being more of an advancement of character than of narrative, however, as we got a much better peek into Don and a little into Emma as well. This was a conflict that was going to be worse the longer it was allowed to fester, so having it come to a head this quickly was one of the better scenarios, especially since it seems to have made their working relationships stronger rather than weaker. Now, that is not to say that it will only be a positive in the grand scheme. I mentioned last time that Don and Gilda wouldn't have tried to sneak into the hidden room on their own if they had actually known the full truth. They didn't learn anything useful to the overall planning, but they may have alerted Isabella that they were aware of the room or even that they had accessed it. That is potential fallout that originated in the half-truth that Emma related. It also leads to the new conflict we have at the very end, which I'll get to in a moment. Thus, there are potential narrative shifts which have originated in this initial act of not quite trusting one another. However, this does not resolve all potential fallout from ongoing deception. With Emma's confession of coming up with her own escape plan, Norman finds himself in an unenviable position. He is hiding the condition for Ray's support from Emma, and he is now hiding Emma's own escape plan from Ray. It would initially seem that no one learned a lesson from feeding half-truths to Dawn and Gilda. It seems hypocritical for Ray, who was so upset about deceiving them with false hope, to turn around and be okay with Norman giving the same false hope to Emma. But it also seems hypocritical for Emma to have seen the error of her ways and not trusting Dawn and Gilda, yet decide she will still not fully trust Ray. The difference here, I think, is the stakes are much higher in the deception which continues. Emma or Ray learning about the other's secret plan will involve more than just hurt feelings. This conflict leaves Dawn and Gilda, basically, and instead encompasses the intrigue in play among our trio. Next, I want to make a new conflict by splitting an existing one. I already had the Caretaker Suspect Them conflict, which revolved around both of them believing that two or more of the kids knew the secret, yet without a full picture of who knew what. Thus, our trio has had to lay low because of increased suspicion while still trying to plan for their own escape. The fallout from Don and Gilda sneaking into the hidden room made them drop this caution, and Crone's suspicion meant she was ready for such a slip. She is undoubtedly the one Ray suspects is eavesdropping during the final part of that scene, and she may be represented by the camera angle shot through the windows of the dining room as well. However, I want to split this off and make a new conflict called Crone's Proposal. I have no idea what goes into it yet, but it's going to be separate from the conflict inherent in Crone or Isabella knowing exactly who knows what. Crone correctly sorting out the five which know the truth advances the caretaker suspect conflict, and it is a threat to Isabella just as surely as to our five conspirators. However, this is the third time we have seen Crone make overtures at one of the kids. In the third episode Game of Tag, she said out loud to Emma that if she saw the harvest that day, then Crone is on her side. In the fourth episode, she offers to join hands, as she puts it, with Gilda, 
proposing that she will let only her go if she cooperates. She's been off screen almost completely since then, only to show up now with her information complete and an offer of joining forces. Since we've listened in on her rants to her baby doll, we in the audience know that she does want some kind of cooperation, at least as far as dragging Isabella down. Whether that will be beneficial to the kids or not remains to be seen, but she has them in a hard place at the moment, so I doubt they can afford to refuse her out of hand. I feel like we've just been waiting for her to finally impact the narrative, and this is potentially a huge wrinkle in their plans just as they were starting to solidify. One thing I want to throw out there while we're on it, I view that third episode game of tag as metaphor and foreshadowing, and I've spoken about it in that sense already. Having Crone make her offer directly to Emma this time, just as she did then, makes me wonder if this current conflict is a parallel to that moment of catching her in the game of tag. Like then, Emma has decided to take two others into her own path, though this time it is Dawn and Gilda, rather than two kids she can pick up and run with. However, she got caught this time because of involving Dawn and Gilda in the first place, just as she got caught in the game of tag by burning herself with the young ones. If the parallel holds out, then it means Emma will be out of the game in a sense, leaving Ray and Norman the only ones able to continue. In that game, they eventually eluded her by splitting up, that is, by choosing different paths, and they seem to be pursuing different paths for success in this whole escape project as well. Should we then expect there to be a similar separation at the end? Emma ends up with everyone else, while Norman and Ray keep the authorities occupied long enough for time to expire? Does it suggest that Norman and Ray both will end up making choices that enable only Emma to escape of the three of them, and yet to do so with basically all the other kids? Or they have to escape in a different manner, with hopes of meeting up later? I don't know if it suggests all that or not, but even at the time, I thought that game of tag with Crone was highly representative of other events, so it wouldn't shock me. I know that's pretty speculative, but I don't have enough evidence to make it an official speculation, so I just wanted to mention it here at the end of Conflicts. Uh, I'm a little bit lighter on theme today, as I'm still deciding what to do with one of them. Uh, we'll start off, though, with Trust and Betrayal. We already covered a lot of this as part of the great nighttime confrontation between the five, but I do want to revisit Dawn's statement in the hidden room. Gilda is excusing the trio for having obscured something from them, believing that they would have a good reason to do so. She trusts their judgment. But Dawn disagrees. I can't believe them like that because they don't believe in us. As I mentioned, this is just what we thought might happen when the two learned they had not been trusted with the truth. Though it seems they differ in how they take it, the realization that you've been deceived does not engender greater trust in the deceivers. Trust begets trust. And as our opening quote suggested, not extending your trust to someone makes them distrustful in turn. But of course, one cannot simply trust everyone and everything, else you are set up for disaster. Trusting that Isabella really had their best intentions at heart and was sending them on to adopted families is basically how we got to this point. As I said before, her betrayal is the seed of all the other trust issues that are plaguing our cast. A single instance of misplaced trust creates a bit of a cascade, 
leading even to someone like Emma wanting to pull back from trusting those around her as fully as she might have originally. I already spoke about how she is somewhat hypocritical in this manner, as she is determined to save everyone, yet can't even extend a trust to the two people who are probably some of the most capable out of the entire other three dozen children. How can she trust that they will all work together and survive if she can't trust Dawn and Gilda with the full truth? Of course, laying all the cards out on the table and taking responsibility for their individual wrongdoing goes a long way to repair things between Dawn and Gilda and the trio. That is, extending trust, even when coerced, helps strengthen how trusting they are of one another. But of course, we also have the higher stakes side plans that Emma and Ray hide from each other. Norman knows both plans exist and that they are keeping them secret. Each has extended trust to him and he seems to be taking that seriously. Emma actually asked him first if he thought she should share it with Ray, but the act of bringing up hiding it at all already means she trusts Ray less than she trusts Norman. She even trusts him to make the right call. Outside of her mistake with Dawn and Gilda, Emma is usually pretty trusting, and she can thus easily trust Norman in turn. This is different from Ray, who is not very trusting, and so does not have the same faith in Norman. He immediately suspected that Norman's agreement to his demands might be a lie, and was low-key threatening about what would happen if he was lying. In his case, that reluctance to trust others definitely makes them more hesitant to trust him in turn. Now, at the very end, we have a cliffhanger, which I'm sure will immediately challenge everyone's appetite for trusting. Whatever it is Crone wants will almost certainly require them to trust her in some way, and her them. It goes without saying that our five conspirators won't trust Crone as much as they trust each other, but will they extend enough trust for whatever she is opposing to actually work? Not enough trust can precipitate disaster just as surely as trusting too much. Our related paranoia theme is what I want to bring up next, with a possible alteration. Um, I mentioned already that we had several point-of-view shots this time, which heightens that feeling of being watched. At least one of those ended up not being paranoia at all, but an eavesdropping sister. From now on, whenever we see that spying point-of-view camera, we'll have to wonder if it's just technique, or someone watching them that will enter the story again later. Anyway, the other thing we've talked about before in this category was the visual motif of single points of light surrounded by darkness. This emphasized a feeling of isolation, a closed circle mystery setting, as well as how the darkness of the unknown surrounded them on all sides, both in life and in geographic reality. But this time, there is a different permutation of the light-dark visual motif, and it may lead me to create a different category. During the confrontation between Dawn and Gilda and the trio, they are gathered around two lanterns in the darkness of the dining room. While this does emphasize how darkness and danger surrounds them, and may even be pressing more closely due to their reckless actions, I want to propose another reading of the light. At the start of the scene, Dawn and Gilda and Norman and Emma are all within the circle of light, while Ray stands just outside. The light doesn't reach his face. After Dawn's outburst, though, he goes outside with Gilda following, and they leave their lantern's reach. However, 
When Emma comes to apologize, she brings the light with her, and the four then present apologize to one another to make up. Ray then shows up a bit outside, but Emma extends the light's throw to include him as he makes his own apology, and this brings all of them into the light together. In this respect, light seems to stand for something like inclusion or solidarity, a defensive pact against the darkness. This could have some overlap with their trust as well, thus making the lantern light and surrounding darkness a visual echo of the trust and betrayal theme from earlier. Don and Gilda running from the trio after feeling some betrayal is a demonstration of the broken relationships, and standing out in the darkness is akin to standing outside the trio's coalition. But because Emma comes to apologize and repair those relationships, the light comes to encompass them all once more. There is even a moment in the dining room where Ray, despite standing partially outside the light, will rush in when Norman is struck by Dawn. For a brief moment, the light reaches his face, but he was only moved to do so because of the threat to Norman. I'm not sure what exactly to do with this observation just yet, and it may be that there is simply a light and dark element to both of these patterns, but I wanted to go ahead and share these observations now. For the remaining mysteries part of our speculation section, we mostly answered the two questions added last time. What is in the secret room, and who is opening the door? The latter ended up being a bit of audience misdirection, and does not seem to have changed the story in any way. The only new information about the secret room is that Isabella has a minor collection of things she has kept from past children. I mentioned how this assortment of toys seemed more like a display for her personally, rather than just a place to store them, and so I think we should add a new related mystery. Why does Isabella keep the mementos? These aren't just shoved in a box, so it's more than just keeping them out of sight. I talked about the oddity of this already, and how it reminded me of the way she hugged Connie's drawing affectionately. Does Isabella have some kind of twisted idea of motherhood going on? This is akin to some of the questions I asked about the scene with Ray, and their almost celebratory discussion of him being shipped out in January. Is she a true believer in what the demons do with their harvest? And does she look at her role here as somehow sacred? Does she celebrate these children's conversion into food or ritual the way people may celebrate a martyr? I've been assuming that her motherly actions were part of the grand masquerade, duping the children into trusting her to make the job of raising them for slaughter that much easier. But in the scene with Ray, where no pretense is necessary, I still get a maternal vibe. Is that just because she and Ray are able to have a more honest relationship? Or does this extend to all of the children, and she doesn't actually see a conflict between her duty to them and her duty to the demons? I'll confess that this could be nothing, and the way Isabella treasures these things may be more akin to a serial killer keeping trophies, but it definitely is at odds with what I would have assumed she would be like when the mask was off. I'd like an answer to this mystery for sure. Another mystery to add is who is William Minerva? I might instead say who or what is William Minerva, since I think it's equally likely that this is a nom de plume for an organization that exists somewhere in the world. Um, I doubt it's a real person's real name. Now, contained within this mystery is not just who or what Minerva is, but what they hope to accomplish. 
Would these few single word messages be enough to alert the children to their fate on their own? Probably not, right? So is it meant to be found instead by those who stumble onto the truth but need guidance about what to do next? That would be my own guess, but the matter of the single word messages being of little value still holds. Thus, I agree with Emma that it's likely at least some of these books chosen to bear the plates will have information in them which is useful to the group going forward. Maybe it's very practical survival information. Maybe it's a real look at the state of the world hidden as a story. Maybe some kind of map or destination can be divined from studying their contents. Maybe all that. Whatever the message, it was designed to evade detection and hide in plain sight and meant to be found only by children smart enough to make the connections necessary to realize there was any message at all. Perhaps only such children will be smart enough to make use of whatever else has been communicated through the choice of books. This makes the book plates both cipher and proving ground. Now one of the encoded words prompted me to make a more open speculation, so I will get to that at the end. First, though, beyond the mysteries, we have cause to revisit our Ray Has Secrets speculation from way back. This ended up being partially answered by Ray's reveal as the traitor, but I left it up here because I believed that he still wasn't telling the whole truth. He is still holding some cards close to his chest. With this episode, I feel there is reason to speculate a little further. This goes back to the phrasing about saving both of them versus saving all of us, that Ray spoke in such a way that might suggest he was only trying to save Norman and Emma and not even himself. Since we had that phrasing repeatedly emphasized this episode, as I've pointed out, I don't think it's an idle slip of the tongue. We don't yet know what it is Norman found hidden under the floor in Ray's room, but we do know two things. It made Norman smile and remark on how amazing Ray is, and it's something that Ray was continuing to hide from them despite coming clean about being a spy. He has some side game quite apart from wanting to deceive Emma and whatever his original arrangement with Isabella consisted of. And the evidence of this ploy is encouraging to Norman rather than discouraging. I fully expect him to confront Ray about it when the time is right, but the nature of the ploy will probably determine when exactly that is. What could such a ploy be? Well, if we work backward from the noted oddity of only working to save the two of them, then the first stop is to assume that Ray has only ever meant to find a way to free Emma and Norman. This seems at odds with a lot of what was assumed about his decision-making to this point. I noted early on that he seemed not to be driven for the sake of others like Emma and Norman, and thus we guessed that he might come into conflict with them over the specifics of the plan to escape. That basically has happened with him extracting the promise from Norman to deceive Emma about saving everyone. We know he's watched many children be taken away for the harvest while understanding what it meant. The fact that he has not made a move until right now, when his own deadline must be drawing close, suggested that he was motivated by self-interest. His continued effort to not save all of the children reinforces this callousness, and the reveal last time that he probably got some children shipped out early by experimenting on their tracking devices especially paint him as a cold pragmatist who does not care about the fates of others if it will benefit what he wants. 
His gloating and almost sinister smile after the conversation with Norman last time really cemented this interpretation, as there would be no reason for him to keep up a charade while alone. That would be a bit of storytelling dishonesty, basically, so we assume it was how he genuinely felt. But, well, our cliffhanger with the opening door ended up being nothing. It was a somewhat dishonest cliffhanger. Because of that, I can believe the storytellers would intentionally obscure the full picture of how Ray feels to misdirect us toward a wrong impression. In a story all about secret plans and trust betrayal and misdirection, doing something like that actually puts the audience into the shoes of the characters. Having them give us an erroneous impression of Ray, or even other characters, helps us understand the confusion and paranoia of our cast. Thus, just as I said back in Goals, it now seems like he wants to save Emma and Norman, and yet he doesn't want them to know everything about how he intends this. The most likely reason he would want to keep this secret is because it is something they would object to or might try to prevent if they understood. That could mean something morally heinous, or it could simply be that he means to sacrifice himself. If we roll with that second one, then his attempts to stop Emma from trying to drag literally everyone into the wild is really an attempt to keep his sacrifice from being in vain. He's positive that taking the young ones will doom Emma and Norman, and they're the ones he really wants to save. His seeming indifference to past sacrifices or the children he experimented on did not indicate a complete lack of empathy for everyone, but rather that he only cares about saving his two friends. He would allow for them taking Dawn and Gilda, not because he cares about those two, but because it might improve their chances. Thus, his deal with Isabella apparently was to keep Emma and Norman until they turned 12, which we now know would happen after Ray turned 12 and was shipped out. His 12th birthday is the time limit, and probably is the reason he is only acting now, but it's not because he's trying to save himself, but rather because he won't be able to do anything for them after he's gone. He has to arrange for their escape while he is still there. He's being shipped out either way, so he might as well make this his final act. Granted, this makes a lot of assumptions about whether or not he was really always meant for the harvest. Like I said, he and Isabella seem somewhat celebratory about his shipping date, and so he might have some other fate in demon society. If that's so, then it means he's giving that up to save the other two. Either way, it would require a lot of willingness to deceive them in order to save them. I now wonder if that is part of why lying to Don and Gilda bothered him so much, that it strayed too near to his own guilty conscience and his own deceit, even if both actions were made with the best intentions. The other speculation I want to address is new, and I'm just calling it The Promise. One of the Minerva messages that Emma thought noteworthy simply said promise. The history behind that choice of word is something that will probably be teased out over time, but I wanted to go ahead and share a few thoughts on it. This seems a likely origin for our series title, The Promised Neverland. Emma believes that those two books may end up being an important guide for them. I suggested it's possible that the books will contain something like a destination or map, either to the originator of these messages or some other refuge in the world. Such a location would stand out in their imaginations as a beacon of hope, 
some idealized land of safety which may or may not actually exist, but one they will strive towards nonetheless. That is, a Neverland. So, I could see our title referring to some place they attempt to journey toward because of what they discern from these books, and such a place exists in their mind as the promised Neverland. Now, Minerva's choice of the word promise has its own intrigue. A promise implies a pledge to do or not do something, a future action which will fulfill the intention of the person who originally made the promise. Though one can promise themselves, it usually involves promising to or for some other person. If the encoded message refers to either a refuge or some assistance in helping children free themselves from the farm, then who is this promise made to? I can reasonably assume the person or persons using the Minerva identity are fulfilling the referred to promise, but who is on the other side of that pact? Because of sending messages to the library of the farm, this makes me wonder if such a promise was shared between past residents of this farm. For example, some kids got out in the past, or they wanted to get out, but only some of them made it, and creating this Neverland was part of a pact the survivors made on behalf of those who got caught by the system. I don't know what the scale of this story will be yet, but that would give it a large scope that could still believably be tied together at a future point. That is, some actions originating out of the past, and maybe from this very location, could one day intersect with the current undertaking by Emma and the rest. There's a lot of potential for a bittersweet resolution in all this, if Emma and at least some of the kids eventually find their way to helping Minerva fulfill whatever was promised. Just simply surviving because of Minerva's aid or arriving at a refuge Minerva created could qualify. I know there is little basis for this right now, but no matter what, a title like The Promised Neverland heavily implies a destination or situation that the story will move toward. The emphasis on the word promise in the messages is the first suggestion of a link, so I figured I'd take a wild stab at it. I still believe we'll dive into the pasts of some of our adult characters, and so this was a much more natural conclusion for me to draw, but I don't have any more basis for those assumptions either. Even if it ends up being way off base, I find it interesting to see what potential story paths appear to be open at various points in a story. That is all for today. Um, please remember what I said about seeming non-spoilers that may give away more than you realize. I'll see you next week. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.